Chapter thirty two of Rural Rides. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nicole Lee. Rural Rides by William Cobbett. Chapter thirty two. Eastern tour ended, Midland tour begun. Lincoln, twenty third April, eighteen thirty. From the inn at Spittal we came to this famous ancient Roman station, and afterwards grand scene of Saxon and Gothic splendour, on the twenty-first. It was the third or fourth day of the spring fair, which is one of the greatest in the kingdom, and which lasts for a whole week. Horses begin the fair, then come sheep, and to-day the horned cattle. It is supposed that there were about fifty thousand sheep, and I think the whole of the space in the various roads and streets, covered by the cattle, must have amounted to ten acres of ground or more. Some say that they were as numerous as the sheep. The number of horses I did not hear, but they say that there were fifteen hundred fewer in number than last year. The sheep sold five shillings a head on an average lower than last year, and the cattle in the same proportion. High-priced horses sold well, but the horses which are called tradesmen's horses were very low. This is the natural march of the thing, those who live on the taxes have money to throw away, but those who pay them are ruined, and have, of course, no money to lay out on horses. The country from Spittal to Lincoln continued to be much about the same as from Barton to Spittal. Large fields, rather light loam, at top, stone under, about half corn-land, and the rest grass. Not so many sheep as in the richer lands, but a great many still. As you get on towards Lincoln the ground gradually rises, and you go on the road made by the Romans. When you come to the city you find the ancient castle and the magnificent cathedral on the brow of a sort of ridge, which ends here, for you look all of a sudden down into a deep valley, where the greater part of the remaining city lies. It once had fifty-two churches, it has now only eight, and only about nine thousand inhabitants. The cathedral is, I believe, the finest building in the whole world. All the others that I have seen, and I have seen all in England, except Chester, York, Carlisle, and Durham, are little things compared with this. To the task of describing a thousandth part of its striking beauties, I am inadequate. It surpasses greatly all that I had anticipated. And oh, how loudly it gives the lie to those brazen Scotch historians, who would have us believe that England was formerly a poor country. The whole revenue raised from Lincolnshire, even by this present system of taxation, would not rear such another pile in two hundred years. Some of the city gates are down, but there is one standing, the arch of which is said to be two thousand years old. And a most curious thing it is. The sight of the cathedral fills the mind alternately with wonder, admiration, melancholy, and rage. Wonder at its grandeur and magnificence, admiration of the zeal and disinterestedness of those who here devoted to the honour of God those immense means which they might have applied to their own enjoyments, melancholy at its present neglected state, and indignation against those who now enjoy the revenues belonging to it, and who creep about it merely as a pretext for devouring a part of the fruit of the people's labour. There are no men in England who ought to wish for reform so anxiously as the working clergy of the Church of England. We are all oppressed, but they are oppressed and insulted more than any men that ever lived in the world. The clergy in America, I mean in free America, not in our beggarly colonies, where clerical insolence and partiality prevail still more than here, I mean in the United States, 
where every man gives what he pleases and no more the clergy of the episcopal church are a hundred times better off than the working clergy are here they are also much more respected because their order has not to bear the blame of enormous exactions which exactions here are swallowed up by the aristocracy and their dependents but which swallowings are imputed to every one bearing the name of parson throughout the whole country i have maintained the necessity and the justice of resuming the church property but i have never failed to say that i know of no more meritorious and ill-used men than the working clergy of the established church leicester twenty sixth april eighteen thirty at the famous ancient city of lincoln i had crowded audiences principally consisting of farmers on the twenty first and twenty second exceedingly well-behaved audiences and great impression produced one of the evenings in pointing out to them the wisdom of explaining to their labourers the cause of their distress in order to ward off the effects of the resentment which the labourers now feel everywhere against the farmers i related to them what my labourers at barn elm had been doing since i left home and i repeated to them the complaints that my labourers made stating to them from memory the following parts of that spirited petition that your petitioners have recently observed that many great sums of the money part of which we pay have been voted to be given to persons who render no services to the country some of which sums we will mention here that the sum of ninety four thousand nine hundred pounds has been voted for disbanded foreign officers their widows and children that your petitioners know that ever since the peace this charge has been annually made that it has been on an average a hundred and ten thousand pounds a year and that of course this band of foreigners have actually taken away out of england since the peace one million and seven hundred thousand pounds partly taken from the fruit of our labour and if our dinners were actually taken from our table and carried over to hanover the process could not be to our eyes more visible than it now is and we are astonished that those who fear that we who make the land bring forth crops and who make the clothing and the houses shall swallow up the rental appear to think nothing at all of the swallowings of these hanoverian men women and children who may continue thus to swallow for half a century to come that the advocates of the project for sending us out of our country to the rocks and snows of nova scotia and the swamps and wilds of canada have insisted on the necessity of checking marriages amongst us in order to cause a decrease in our numbers that however while this is insisted on in your honourable house we perceive a part of our own earnings voted away to encourage marriage amongst those who do not work and who live at our expense and that to your petitioners it does seem most wonderful that there should be persons to fear that we the labourers shall on account of our numbers swallow up the rental while they actually vote away our food and raiment to increase the numbers of those who never have produced and who never will produce anything useful to man that your petitioners know that more than one half of the whole of their wages is taken from them by the taxes that these taxes go chiefly into the hands of idlers that your petitioners are the bees and that the tax receivers are the drones and they know further that while there is a project for sending the bees out of the country no one proposes to send away the drones but that your petitioners hope to see the day when the checking of the increase of the drones and not of the bees will be the object of an english parliament that in consequence of taxes your petitioners pay sixpence for a pot of worse beer than they could make for one penny that they pay ten shillings for a pair of shoes that they could have for five shillings that they pay sevenpence for a pound of soap or candles that they could have for threepence that they pay sevenpence for a pound of sugar that they could have for threepence that they pay six shillings for a pound of tea that they could have for two shillings that they pay double for their bread and meat of what they would have to pay if there were no idlers to be kept out of the taxes that therefore it is the taxes that make their wages insufficient for their support and that compel them to apply for aid to the poor rates 
that knowing these things they feel indignant at hearing themselves described as paupers while so many thousands of idlers for whose support they pay taxes are called noble lords and ladies honourable gentlemen masters and misses that they feel indignant at hearing themselves described as a nuisance to be got rid of while the idlers who live upon their earnings are upheld caressed and cherished as if they were the sole support of the country having repeated to them these passages i proceeded my workmen were induced thus to petition in consequence of the information which i their master had communicated to them and gentlemen why should not your labourers petition in the same strain why should you suffer them to remain in a state of ignorance relative to the cause of their misery the eye sweeps over in this county more riches in one moment than i contain in the whole county in which i was born and in which the petitioners live between holbeach and boston even at a public-house neither bread nor meat was to be found and while the landlord was telling me that the people were become so poor that the butchers killed no meat in the neighbourhood i counted more than two thousand fat sheep lying about in the pastures in that richest spot in the whole world starvation in the midst of plenty the land covered with food and the working people without victuals everything taken away by the tax-eaters of various descriptions and yet you take no measures for redress and your miserable labourers seem to be doomed to expire with hunger without an effort to obtain relief what cannot you point out to them the real cause of their sufferings cannot you take a piece of paper and write out a petition for them cannot your labourers petition as well as mine are god's blessings bestowed on you without any spirit to preserve them is the fatness of the land is the earth teeming with food for the body and raiment for the back to be an apology for the want of that courage for which your fathers were so famous is the abundance which god has put into your hands to be the excuse for your resigning yourselves to starvation my god is there no spirit left in england except in the miserable sand-hills of surrey these words were not uttered without effect i can assure the reader the assemblage was of that stamp in which thought goes before expression but the effect of this example of my men in surrey will i am sure be greater than anything that has been done in the petitioning way for a long time past we left lincoln on the twenty-third about noon and got to newark in nottinghamshire in the evening where i gave a lecture at the theatre to about three hundred persons newark is a very fine town and the castle inn where we stopped extraordinarily good and pleasantly situated here i was met by a parcel of the printed petitions of the labourers at barn elm i shall continue to sow these as i proceed on my way it should have been stated at the head of the printed petition that it was presented to the house of lords by his grace the duke of richmond and by mr palmer to the house of commons the country from lincoln to newark sixteen miles is by no means so fine as that which we have been in for so many weeks the land is clayey in many parts a pleasant country a variety of hill and valley but not that richness which we had so long had under our eye fields smaller fewer sheep and those not so large and so manifestly loaded with flesh the roads always good newark is a town very much like nottingham having a very fine and spacious market-place the buildings everywhere good but it is in the villages that you find the depth of misery having appointed positively to be at leicester in the evening of saturday the twenty fourth we could not stop either at grantham or at melton mowbray not even long enough to view their fine old magnificent churches in going from newark to grantham we got again into lincolnshire in which last county grantham is from newark nearly to melton mowbray the country is about the same as between lincoln and newark by no means bad land but not so rich as that of lincolnshire in the middle and eastern parts not approaching to the holderness country in point of riches a large part arable land well tilled but not such large homesteads such numerous great stacks of wheat and such endless flocks of lazy sheep 
Before we got to Melton Mowbray, the beautiful pastures of this little verdant county of Leicester began to appear. Meadows and green fields, with here and there a cornfield, all of smaller dimensions than those of Lincolnshire, but all very beautiful, with gentle hills and woods too. Not beautiful woods, like those of Hampshire and of the wilds of Surrey, Sussex and Kent, but very pretty, all the country around being so rich. At Mowbray we began to get amongst the Leicestershire sheep, those fat creatures which we see the butcher's boys battering about so unmercifully in the streets and the outskirts of the Wen. The land is warmer here than in Lincolnshire, the grass more forward, and the wheat between Mowbray and Leicester six inches high, and generally looking exceedingly well. In Lincolnshire and Nottinghamshire I found the wheat in general rather thin and frequently sickly, nothing like so promising as in Suffolk and Norfolk. We got to Leicester on the 24th, at about half after five o'clock and the time appointed for the lecture was six. Leicester is a very fine town, spacious streets, fine inns, fine shops, and containing, they say, thirty or forty thousand people. It is well stocked with jails, of which a new one, in addition to the rest, has just been built, covering three acres of ground. And, as if proud of it, the grand portal has little turrets in the castle style, with embrasures in miniature on the caps of the turrets. Nothing speaks the want of reflection in the people so much, as the self-gratulation which they appear to feel in these edifices in their several towns. Instead of expressing shame at these indubitable proofs of the horrible increase of misery and of crime, they really boast of these improvements, as they call them. Our forefathers built abbeys and priories and churches, and they made such use of them that jails were nearly unnecessary. We, their sons, have knocked down the abbeys and priories, suffered half the parsonage houses and churches to pretty nearly tumble down, and make such uses of the remainder that jails and treadmills and dungeons have now become the most striking edifices in every county in the kingdom. Yesterday morning, Sunday the 25th, I walked out to the village of Knighton, two miles on the Bosworth Road, where I breakfasted and then walked back. This morning I walked out to Halston, nearly three miles on the Lutterworth Road, and got my breakfast there. You have nothing to do but to walk through these villages to see the cause of the increase of the jails. Standing on the hill at Knighton, you see the three ancient and lofty and beautiful spires rising up at Leicester. You see the river winding down through a broad bed of the most beautiful meadows that man ever set his eyes on. You see the bright verdure covering all the land, even to the tops of the hills, with here and there a little wood, as if made by God to give variety to the beauty of the scene, for the river brings the coal in abundance for fuel, and the earth gives the brick and the tile in abundance. But go down into the villages, invited by the spires, rising up amongst the trees in the dells, at scarcely ever more than a mile or two apart. Invited by these spires, go down into these villages. View the large and once the most beautiful churches. See the parson's house, large and in the midst of pleasure gardens, and then look at the miserable sheds in which the labourers reside. Look at these hovels made of mud and of straw, bits of glass, or of old off-cast windows, without frames or hinges frequently, but merely stuck in the mud wall. Enter them and look at the bits of chairs or stools, the wretched boards tacked together to serve for a table, the floor of pebble, broken brick, or of the bare ground. Look at the thing called a bed, and survey the rags on the backs of the wretched inhabitants, and then wonder if you can that the jails and dungeons and treadmills increase, and that a standing army and barracks are become the favourite establishments of England. At the village of Aylston I got into the purlieu, as they call it, in Hampshire, of a person well known in the Wen namely the Reverend Beresford, rector of that fat affair, St. Andrew's Hoban. In walking through the village and surveying its deplorable dwellings, so much worse than the cowsheds of the cottages on the skirts of the forest in Hampshire, my attention was attracted by the surprising contrast between them and the house of their religious teacher. I met a labouring man, 
country people know everything if you ever made a faux pas of any sort of description if you have anything about you of which you do not want all the world to know never retire to a village keep in some great town but the when for your life for there the next-door neighbour will not know even your name and the vicinage will judge of you solely by the quantity of money that you have to spend this labourer seemed not to be in a very great hurry he was digging in his garden and i looking over a low hedge pitched him up for a gossip commencing by asking him whether that was the parson's house having answered in the affirmative and i having asked the parson's name he proceeded thus his name is beresford but though he lives there he has not this living now he has got the living of st andrew's haven and they say it is worth a great many thousands a year he could not they say keep this living and have that too because they were so far apart and so this living was given to mr brown who is the rector of hoby about seven miles off well said i but how comes beresford to live here now if the living be given to another man why so said he this beresford married a daughter of brown and so you know smiling and looking very archly brown comes and takes the payment for the tithes and pays a curate that lives in that house there in the field and beresford lives at that fine house still just as he used to do i asked him what the living was worth and he answered twelve hundred pounds a year it is a rectory i find and of course the parson has great tithes as well as small the people of this village know a great deal more about beresford than the people of st andrew's hoban know about him in short the country people know all about the whole thing they will be long before they act but they will make no noise as a signal for action they will be moved by nothing but actual want of food this the thing seems to be aware of and hence all the innumerable schemes for keeping them quiet hence the endless jails and all the terrors of hardened law hence the schemes for coaxing them by letting them have bits of land hence the everlasting bills and discussions of committees about the state of the poor and the state of the poor laws all of which will fail and at last unless reduction of taxation speedily take place the schemers will find what the consequences are of reducing millions to the verge of starvation the labourers here who are in need of parochial relief are formed into what are called roundsmen that is to say they are sent round from one farmer to another each maintaining a certain number for a certain length of time and thus they go round from one to the other if the farmers did not pay three shillings in taxes out of every six shillings that they give in the shape of wages they could afford to give the men four and sixpence in wages which would be better to the men than the six but as long as this burden of taxes shall continue so long the misery will last and it will go on increasing with accelerated pace the march of circumstances is precisely what it was in france just previous to the french revolution if the aristocracy were wise they would put a stop to that march the middle class are fast sinking down to the state of the lower class a community of feeling between these classes and that feeling an angry one is what the aristocracy has to dread as far as the higher clergy are concerned this community of feeling is already complete a short time will extend the feeling to every other branch and then the hideous consequences make their appearance reform a radical reform of the parliament this reform in time this reform which would reconcile the middle class to the aristocracy and give renovation to that which has now become a mass of decay and disgust this reform given with a good grace and not taken by force is the only refuge for the aristocracy of this kingdom just as it was in france all the tricks of financiers have been tried in vain and by and by some trick more pompous and foolish than the rest sir henry parnell's trick perhaps or something equally foolish would blow the whole concern into the air worcester eighteenth may eighteen thirty in tracing myself from leicester to this place i begin at lutterworth in leicestershire one of the prettiest country towns that i ever saw that is to say prettiest situated 
at this place they have in the church they say the identical pulpit from which wycliffe preached this was not his birthplace but he was it seems priest of this parish i set off from lutterworth early on the twenty ninth of april stopped to breakfast at birmingham got to wolverhampton by two o'clock a distance altogether of about fifty miles and lectured at six in the evening i repeated or rather continued the lecturing on the thirtieth and on the third of may on the sixth of may went to dudley and lectured there on the tenth of may at birmingham on the twelfth and thirteenth at shrewsbury and on the fourteenth came here thus have i come through countries of corn and meat and iron and coal and from the banks of the humber to those of the seven i find all the people who do not share in the taxes in a state of distress greater or less mortgages all frightened out of their wits fathers trembling for the fate of their children and working people in the most miserable state and as they ought to be in the worst of temper these will i am afraid be the state doctors at last the farmers are cowed down the poorer they get the more cowardly they are every one of them sees the cause of his suffering and sees general ruin at hand but every one hopes that by some trick some act of meanness some contrivance he shall escape so that there is no hope of any change for the better but from the working people the farmers will sink to a very low state and thus the thing barring accidents may go on until neither farmer nor tradesman will see a joint of meat on his table once in a quarter of a year it appears likely to be precisely as it was in france it is now just what france was at the close of the reign of louis the fifteenth it has been the fashion to ascribe the french revolution to the writings of voltaire rousseau diderot and others these writings had nothing at all to do with the matter no nothing at all the revolution was produced by taxes which at last became unbearable by debts of the state but in fact by the despair of the people produced by the weight of the taxes it is curious to observe how ready the supporters of tyranny and taxation are to ascribe rebellions and revolutions to disaffected leaders and particularly to writers and as these supporters of tyranny and taxation have had the press at their command have had generally the absolute command of it they have caused this belief to go down from generation to generation it will not do for them to ascribe revolutions and rebellions to the true cause because then the rebellions and revolutions would be justified and it is their object to cause them to be condemned infinite delusion has prevailed in this country in consequence of the efforts of which i am now speaking voltaire was just as much a cause of the french revolution as i have been the cause of imposing these sixty millions of taxes the french revolution was produced by the grindings of taxation and this i will take an opportunity very soon of proving to the conviction of every man in the kingdom who chooses to read in the iron country of which wolverhampton seems to be a sort of central point and where thousands and perhaps two or three hundred thousand people are assembled together the chuck or tommy system generally prevails and this is a very remarkable feature in the state of this country i have made inquiries with regard to the origin or etymology of this word tommy and could find no one to furnish me with the information it is certainly like so many other good things to be ascribed to the army for when i was a recruit at chatham barracks in the year seventeen eighty three we had brown bread served out to us twice in the week and for what reason god knows we used to call it tommy and the sergeants when they called us out to get our bread used to tell us to come and get our tommy even the officers used to call it tommy any one that could get white bread called it bread but the brown stuff that we got in lieu of part of our pay was called tommy and so we used to call it when we got abroad when the soldiers came to have bread served out to them in the several towns in england the name of tommy went down by tradition and doubtless it was taken up and adapted to the truck system in staffordshire and elsewhere now there is nothing wrong nothing essentially wrong in this system of barter 
barter is in practice in some of the happiest communities in the world in the new settled parts of the united states of america to which money has scarcely found its way to which articles of wearing apparel are brought from a great distance where the great and almost sole occupations are the rearing of food the building of houses and the making of clothes barter is the rule and money payment the exception and this is attended with no injury and with very little inconvenience the bargains are made and the accounts kept in money but the payments are made in produce or in goods the price of these being previously settled on the storekeeper which we call shopkeeper receives the produce in exchange for his goods and exchanges that produce for more goods and thus the concerns of the community go on every one living in abundance and the sound of misery never heard but when this tommy system this system of barter when this makes its appearance where money has for ages been the medium of exchange and of payments for labour when this system makes its appearance in such a state of society there is something wrong things are out of joint and it becomes us to inquire into the real cause of its being resorted to and it does not become us to join in an outcry against the employers who resort to it until we be perfectly satisfied that those employers are guilty of oppression the manner of carrying on the tommy system is this suppose there to be a master who employs a hundred men that hundred men let us suppose to earn a pound a week each this is not the case in the ironworks but no matter we can illustrate our meaning by one sum as well as by another these men lay out weekly the whole of the hundred pounds in victuals, drink clothing bedding fuel and house rent now the master finding the profits of his trade fall off very much and being at the same time in want of money to pay the hundred pounds weekly and perceiving that these hundred pounds are carried away at once and given to shopkeepers of various descriptions to butchers bakers drapers hatters shoemakers and the rest and knowing that on an average these shopkeepers must all have a profit of thirty per cent or more he determines to keep this thirty per cent to himself and this is thirty pounds a week gained as a shopkeeper which amounts to one thousand five hundred and sixty pounds a year he therefore sets up a tommy shop a long place containing every commodity that the workman can want liquor and house-room excepted here the workman takes out his pounds worth and his house-rent he pays in truck if he do not rent of his master and if he will have liquor beer or gin or anything else he must get it by trucking with the goods that he has got at the tommy shop now there is nothing essentially unjust in this there is a little inconvenience as far as the house-rent goes but not much the tommy is easily turned into money and if the single saving man does experience some trouble in the sale of his goods that is compensated for in the more important case of the married man whose wife and children generally experience the benefit of this payment in kind it is to be sure a sorrowful reflection that such a check upon the drinking propensities of the fathers should be necessary but the necessity exists and however sorrowful the fact the fact i am assured is that thousands upon thousands of mothers have to bless this system though it arises from a loss of trade and the poverty of the masters i have often had to observe on the cruel effects of the suppression of markets and fairs and on the consequent power of extortion possessed by the country shopkeepers and what a thing it is to reflect on that these shopkeepers have the whole of the labouring men of england constantly in their debt have on an average a mortgage on their wages to the amount of five or six weeks and make them pay any price that they choose to extort so that in fact there is a tommy system in every village the difference being that the shopkeeper is the tommy man instead of the farmer the only question is in this case of the manufacturing tommy work whether the master charges a higher price than the shopkeepers would charge and while i have not heard that the masters do this i think it improbable that they should they must desire to avoid the charge of such extortion and they have little temptation to it because they buy at best hand and in large quantities because they are sure of their customers 
and know to a certainty the quantity that they want and because the distribution of the goods is a matter of such perfect regularity and attended with so little expense compared with the expenses of the shopkeeper any farmer who has a parcel of married men working for him might supply them with meat for fourpence a pound when the butcher must charge them sevenpence or lose by his trade and to me it has always appeared astonishing that farmers where they happen to have the power completely in their hands do not compel their married labourers to have a sufficiency of bread and meat for their wives and children what would be more easy than to reckon what would be necessary for house rent fuel and clothing to pay that in money once a month or something of that sort and to pay the rest in meat flour and malt i may never occupy a farm again but if i were to do it to any extent the east and west indies nor big brewer nor distiller should ever have one farthing out of the produce of my farm except he got it through the throats of those who made the wearing apparel if i had a village at my command not a tea-kettle should sing in that village there should be no extortioner under the name of country shopkeeper and no straight-backed bloated fellow with red eyes unshaven face and slipshod till noon called a publican and generally worthy of the name of sinner well-covered backs and well-lined bellies would be my delight and as to talking about controlling and compelling what a controlling and compelling are there now it is everlasting control and compulsion my bargain should be so much in money and so much in bread meat and malt and what is the bargain i want to know with yearly servants why so much in money and the rest in bread meat beer lodging and fuel and does any one affect to say that this is wrong does any one say that it is wrong to exercise control and compulsion over these servants such control and compulsion is not only the master's right but they are included in his bounden duties it is his duty to make them rise early keep good hours be industrious and careful be cleanly in their persons and habits be civil in their language these are amongst the uses of the means which god has put into his hands and are these means to be neglected towards married servants any more than towards single ones even in the well cultivated and thickly settled parts of the united states of america it is the general custom and a very good custom it is to pay the wages of labour partly in money and partly in kind and this practice is extended to carpenters bricklayers and other workmen about buildings and even to tailors shoemakers and weavers who go a most excellent custom to farmhouses to work the bargain is so much money and found that is to say found in food and drink and sometimes in lodging the money then used to be for a common labourer in long island at common work not haying or harvesting three york shillings a day and found that is to say three times sevenpence halfpenny of our money and three times sevenpence halfpenny a day which is eleven shillings and threepence a week and found this was the wages of the commonest labourer at the commonest work and wages of a good labourer now in worcestershire is eight shillings a week and not found accordingly they are miserably poor and degraded therefore there is in this mode of payment nothing essentially degrading but the tommy system of staffordshire and elsewhere though not unjust in itself indirectly inflicts great injustice on the whole race of shopkeepers who are necessary for the distribution of commodities in great towns and whose property is taken away from them by this species of monopoly which the employers of great numbers of men have been compelled to adopt for their own safety it is not the fault of the masters who can have no pleasure in making profit in this way it is the fault of the taxes which by lowering the price of their goods have compelled them to resort to this means of diminishing their expenses or to quit their business altogether which a great part of them cannot do without being left without a penny and if a law could be passed and enforced which it cannot to put an end to the tommy system the consequence would be that instead of a fourth part of the furnaces being let out of blast in this neighbourhood one half would be let out of blast 
an additional thousands of poor creatures would be left solely dependent on the parochial relief. A view of the situation of things at Shrewsbury will lead us in a minute to the real cause of the Tommy system. Shrewsbury is one of the most interesting spots that man ever beheld. It is the capital of the county of Salop, and Salop appears to have been the original name of the town itself. It is curiously enclosed by the River Severn, which is here large and fine, and which, in the form of horseshoe, completely surrounds it, leaving, of the whole of the two miles round, only one little place whereon to pass in and out on land. There are two bridges, one on the east and the other on the west, the former called the English and the other the Welsh Bridge. The environs of this town, especially on the Welsh side, are the most beautiful that can be conceived. The town lies in the midst of a fine agricultural country, of which it is the great and almost only mart. Hither come the farmers to sell their produce, and hence they take in exchange their groceries, their clothing, and all the materials for their implements and the domestic conveniences. It was fair day when I arrived at Shrewsbury. Everything was on the decline. Cheese, which four years ago sold at sixty shillings to six score pounds, would not bring forty. I took particular pains to ascertain the fact with regard to the cheese, which is a great article here. I was assured that shopkeepers in general did not now sell half the quantity of goods in a month that they did in that space of time four or five years ago. The ironmongers were not selling a fourth part of what they used to sell five years ago. Now it is impossible to believe that a somewhat similar falling off in the sale of iron must not have taken place all over the kingdom. And need we then wonder that the iron in Staffordshire has fallen within these five years from thirteen pounds to five pounds a tonne, or perhaps a great deal more? And need we wonder that the ironmasters, who have the same rent and taxes to pay that they had to pay before, have resorted to the Tommy system, in order to assist in saving themselves from ruin? Here is the real cause of the Tommy system, and if Mr. Littleton really wishes to put an end to it, let him prevail upon the Parliament to take off taxes to the amount of forty millions a year. Another article had experienced a still greater falling off at Shrewsbury, I mean the article of corn sacks, of which there has been a falling off of five-sixths. The sacks are made by weavers in the north, and need we wonder, then, at the low wages of those industrious people, whom I used to see weaving sacks in the miserable cellars at Preston. Here is the true cause of the Tommy system, and of all the other evils which disturb and afflict the country. It is a great country, an immense mass of industry and resources of all sorts, breaking up, a prodigious mass of enterprise and capital diminishing and dispersing, the enormous taxes cooperating with the corn-bill, which those taxes have engendered, are driving skill and wealth out of the country in all directions, are causing ironmasters to make France, and particularly Belgium, blaze with furnaces, in the lieu of those which have been extinguished here, and that have established furnaces and cotton-mills in abundance. These same taxes and this same corn-bill are sending the long wool from Lincolnshire to France, there to be made into those blankets which for ages were to be obtained nowhere but in England. This is the true state of the country, and here are the true causes of that state and all that the corrupt writers and speakers say about overpopulation and poor laws, and about all the rest of their shuffling excuses, is a heap of nonsense and of lies. I cannot quit Shrewsbury without expressing the great satisfaction that I derived from my visit to that place. It is the only town into which I have gone in all England, without knowing beforehand something of some person in it. I could find out no person that took the register, and could discover but one person who took the advice to young men. The number of my auditors was expected to be so small that I doubled the price of admission in order to pay the expense of the room. To my great surprise I had a room full of gentlemen, at the request of some of whom I repeated the dose the next night. 
and if my audience were as well pleased with me as I was with them, their pleasure must have been great indeed. I saw not one single person in the place that I had ever seen before, yet I never had more cordial shakes by the hand, in proportion to their numbers, not more at Manchester, Oldham, Rochdale, Halifax, Leeds, or Nottingham, or even Hull. I was particularly pleased with the conduct of the young gentlemen at Shrewsbury, and especially when I asked them whether they were prepared to act upon the insolent doctrine of Huskisson, and quietly submit to this state of things during the present generation. End of chapter 32